Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sue Wolver. Now, Dr. Wolver is a specialist in internal medicine and obesity medicine at Virginian Commonwealth University, and she's the medical director of their um, weight loss program there. Now, not only is she a clinician, though, dealing with people, helping them with weight loss, and she's been doing this as a weight loss specialist, focusing on low carb for the past eight years. But as you'll see, this is sort of just one part of her over 20-year career. She's also, though, the recent author of a paper in Frontiers in Nutrition about her clinic success, about how they've used a low carb intervention to help people lose weight, get off their insulin, and improve their diabetes. Very similar to sort of the data in uh, that we've seen from Verta Health, but it's wonderful to see this in another institution with a whole other set of researchers um, done in a slightly different way without sort of the, the app format, but it's great to see it replicated. And it, I really appreciate this to hear her story about why she did it, her experience with it, of course, her personal journey, her practice, and how everything, how her experience and her journey has impacted her referring physicians and some of her specialist colleagues. I think that's really interesting. Um, we're going to talk about, you know, the use of medications for weight loss and type two diabetes. We're going to talk about um, how to predict compliance and some of the most important things to talk about and screen for when getting started when starting somebody on a low-carb intervention for weight loss or for type 2 diabetes. As I mentioned, she's the director of the weight loss clinic at the at Virginia Commonwealth University, and you can find her on Twitter at low underscore carb underscore doc. Uh, but without further ado, let's get into this interview with Dr. Sue Wolver. Dr. Susan Wolver, thank you so much for joining me today on the Diet Doctor podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's really an honor to have you on. I mean, as we said in, in the introduction, you've been at this game for over eight years now, um, certified in both internal medicine and obesity medicine, but not just sort of on the quote unquote front lines as a clinician. Now you've got this exciting publication out where you're the first author about sort of the success of your program and helping people with type 2 diabetes lose weight and reduce their medications and improve their blood sugar. So I'm excited to talk about all that. Um, but first, give us a little bit of your of your background, how you got into obesity medicine and low carb and what that journey has been like for you. So our reader, our listeners get to know you a little better. So anybody who's heard me speak, I always start off with exactly how I got into this. Um, and basically, as many, many people do, it's from your own personal story. So when I got to be middle-aged and every time I stepped on the scale, I weighed more than the last time. And that was following the same advice I had been giving to my patients for literally decades. I was a primary care doctor for years, eat less, move more. And the harder I tried, the more I gained. And I thought, you know, it was like an epiphany. Maybe it's not that my patients aren't following my advice. Maybe my advice was wrong. So I sort of started on my own personal journey to figure out how to lose weight, found a low-carb diet. It was nothing short of miraculous. For the first time, I was able to lose weight and not be hungry. I used to equate being hungry with, oh, good, it's working because I'm hungry. And then, of course, I would give mm -hmm. up because I couldn't sustain the hunger. And this time, 15 pounds fell off in no time flat. I was not hungry. I was satisfied. I felt great. And I thought, hmm. If I can do this, maybe my patients can too. And they've been desperate to lose weight. I literally talk about diet and exercise at every meeting and had zero success. Really, before I found low carb, in over 20 years of medical practice, I helped two people lose weight and one had gained it back. That's how incredibly unsuccessful I was, despite 
always talking about it and, and trying the new thing, you know, not, don't do white, you know, try this app, do that. And we, I literally kept scouring for what was the magic sauce. And even though I didn't have a lot of weight to lose, I guarantee you, had I not made an intervention, I would be like many of my postmenopausal patients and have 30 or 40 pounds to lose at this point. So basically I, I went to a few of my patients and I said, Hey, you want to try something with me? And that was right at the time where we moved to electronic records. So we had this empty file room and I pulled a couple of patients in the empty file room, got a big flip chart, started drawing a couple of things and say, let's just try this. And, and, you know, before I sort of ventured out to do this as more of more of my job than primary care, I, I needed to sort of have a proof of concept and it worked for them too. And I mean, this was what I wanted to do for my whole life was do preventive medicine and help people regain their health or keep their health. And I, I really felt like not only am I hopefully helping my patients save their lives, but I kind of saved my own life in medicine because that hamster wheel was starting to get very repetitive of keep adding more medications, yeah. never seeing progress. Um, and uh, it's certainly been the most fun I've had in medicine. I honestly have no idea how anyone could do anything else in medicine because it's so gratifying. Wow, that's such such a phenomenal answer. I mean, and on the one hand, it's a very frustrating answer, right? That you had to go through so many years of unsuccessful practice to get to this point and that you had to find it on your own. It's not like it was being promoted as something. And not only have you changed the lives of your patients and your own life, but your professional life has totally been rebooted as well. I mean, I just, I just love the many layers of that story. And I mean, not that you're not unique, but that story is, is not necessarily unique because we know many other doctors in the low carb space um, who have had similar experiences. So I'm just curious, like what were your emotions going through that? Because I could see on the one hand, there could be anger and frustration, like why have I been doing the wrong thing for so long, but yet at the same time, like sort of joy and elation of look at what I can accomplish. So what were your, what were your emotions going through all that? Well, the interesting thing you just said, I kind of had to find it on my own. It's even deeper than finding it on your own because it's actually flying in the face of everything I've ever been taught. I'll never forget. Um, I actually spent a couple of days with uh, Dr. Eric Westman prior to starting my own uh, practice. Literally, I spent Tuesday and Wednesday with him in 2013 in May. Um, and it was that Friday that I called the patients to come into my uh, my file room because <laughs> what I saw, I couldn't unsee. I, I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. We saw 18 patients in follow-up and 17 had lost weight. In my whole 20-plus career at that time, I hadn't seen two people lose weight, let alone 17 in one day. Um, and so I came back. I was so excited to get started. And I ran into my favorite nephrologist in the uh, faculty break room. And I told him what I was going to do. And he looked at me and he said, Sue, you're going to kill all their kidneys. So he's now one of my best referral sources, actually. But um, so it's, uh, that's only, a great story. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not only, um, you know, trying something new, it's flying in the face of everything you've been taught and everything everyone else has been taught. And um, thank goodness I wasn't at the tip, the tip of the spear, you know, people like, you know, Dr. Westman stood before me, because I don't know if I could have endured quite all of the, uh, the naysayers. And, um, but, so, you know, so the emotions were, you know, and part of me is, you know, 20 plus years or 30 plus years at that point of, of learning one way, am I doing the right thing? Am I going to kill their kidneys? Am I going to, to hurt right. them? Um, right. but, but the evidence in front of me is like, these people are getting better, but I've been taught all this stuff. So there's a lot of conflict sort of in my own, you know, personal, um, uh, uh, 
practice. And, and one person actually did have a heart attack early on. And, and I thought, oh, my God, I gave him a heart attack. And I actually called up uh, Eric Westman. And I said, oh, my God, I gave someone a heart attack. He's like, Sue, how old is he? And how long has he been seeing you? You know, like a month. He's like, so he's had, you know, decades and decades and decades. And you've been seeing him for a month. And so I felt better. And, you know, that was many years ago. No one else has had a heart attack since they saw me. In fact, people who had te- who have terrible cardiovascular disease have probably lived longer. Um, and even their cardiologists are saying so with, with their 60, 70 pound you know, weight loss and an improvement of their diabetes. Right. So you mentioned weight loss, but also improvement of their diabetes, improvement of their metabolic health, which kind of leads us to your study that you did, which I want to get into. So let's let's talk about your study. And then through that, we'll kind of come back to your clinical practice and your journey um, as we talk about the specifics of your study. So the study that was recently published in Frontiers of Nutrition um, was basically sort of a, a study of your clinical experience, right? About um, doing a, a search through your electronic health records of the the many patients you've treated with low carb interventions and watched their progress, or then marked how they progressed for reducing medication, improving their weight loss, and improving their blood sugar control. Um, so tell me a little bit about what motivated you to do this, because I mean, for a busy practicing clinician doing this type of data dive and writing and publication and reviews and edits, it's a, it's a bear. So what, what motivated you to do all this? Well, I call myself the reluctant researcher. So, you know, I didn't grow up thinking, oh gosh, I want to do research. I actually did some research in between college and medical school and thought, yeah, I don't want to do that again. Um, so that was more bench research. And now of course this is clinical research, but um, I, I kind of felt an obligation because what we're doing works so well. And because it's really not what we're prescribing for patients, we're, we're sort of stuck in the old paradigm. Um, I thought I really have an obligation to get this information out to people um, and to show people what can happen when you actually use therapeutic carbohydrate uh, restriction. Um, so, so it was more of an obligation. And I think when you first undertake it, you just don't realize how much time and energy it takes um, fortunately, you can see there's a very long list of, of authors or co-authors. Um, I had a lot of really helpful uh, medical students who helped mine the data, uh, a lot of good statisticians to help figure out what the data meant. I mean, I knew clinically that when you see somebody who's been on insulin for 20 plus years on 250 units of insulin, and you can take them off in three weeks, that's a story that needs to be told. Because the, for the most part, the providers don't know that's possible, and the patients surely don't know that's possible. And I think since we see so much diabetes, we can sometimes underestimate the toll that it takes on the patient's life. You know, all our patients have diabetes, and all their family members have diabetes, and we, come, we become a little flippant about what that means to the person having to poke their fingers multiple times a day, give multiple injections, think about how they're going to travel with their medications and, and the, the financial, the physical, the emotional toll that it takes on the patient. And if you can tell them, hey, you know, maybe if you're willing to make some significant changes in your diet and maybe fly in the face of everything you've been taught about how to eat, maybe you can reduce and even come off of insulin. So I just really thought that story needed to be told. And so it took many, many months and we were afforded a wonderful opportunity to be in a a particular uh, issue that was all about therapeutic carbohydrate nutrition uh, restriction. So um, I I thought, well, 
here's the opportunity. We've already been working on the data. Let's just really crunch it so that we can get it out by the deadline. And I'm really, really glad we did. And I really like the point you made about just the, the impact on, on somebody's life, not just their blood sugar values or their, you know, in their risk for future medical complications, but their, their present life of checking blood sugars, about the weight on their shoulders of thinking about being saddled with this chronic disease and their medications, but being able to get past all the emotional part of it too, really just can revamp somebody's life uh, just as much as improving their blood sugar numbers can. So that that's such a good point. One of the greatest thrills is actually telling someone they can stop insulin and people almost always cry. Yeah. You know, no one ever thanked me <laughs> for putting them on insulin but they always do when I take them on. Yeah. So that, that's one of the things that I think is really interesting about this trial. It, it seemed to me like the, the trial was just as much about getting off of insulin as it was about improving blood sugar. Because when you look at your, your plots of the people who improved their blood sugar and people who didn't improve their blood sugar, some people's blood sugar, not many, but some people's blood sugar got a little bit worse and some didn't improve, but just about every one of those people still reduced or got off of their insulin. So let's talk about this first in the bigger picture what do you see as like the bigger goal? Is the bigger goal improving blood sugar? Is the bigger goal reducing medications? Obviously you want to do both together, but when you talk, sit down and talk to a patient about it, how do you sort of explain those two different goals? That, that's a really great question. Um, and I, I definitely have an answer. To me, I do something, and I haven't seen this in the literature, but I coined it, um, I allow them permissive hyperglycemia in the beginning, because I want to get them off of that insulin as fast as possible. So if they're used to really tight blood sugar control, I say, you know what, we're going to loosen it up a little bit because I don't want you to tank because I, I teach them that hypoglycemia is a short-term problem, whereas hyperglycemia is a long-term problem. So we actually have mm -hmm. tremendous contact. We, we require patients on insulin to contact us every single day through the patient portal with what they're eating what their blood sugars are and how much insulin they're on so that they don't wind up because you, you have such rapid de-escalation of their insulin that if you had the traditional, I'll see you back in three months, a number of people would wind up in the hospital. Right. So we require them to have daily contact, which also helps with the engagement, of course, and the, the tweaking day by day. Um, so, but it, it's such a, um, it builds on itself so well when you get them off the insulin quick because they can't lose weight on insulin. You know, we know insulin is a weight gaining medication. So my goal number one is to get them off their insulin. And some of those people that look like, you know, their blood sugars may have gone up. It's because perhaps they dropped out before we could then ratchet down and, and have improvement in their blood sugars. But um, initially it's get them off as, as fast as they can moderate blood sugars, not tight control at that point in time. And once mm -hmm. off of medications that are going to cause hypoglycemia, then we can be much more um, uh, aggressive um, to, to get their blood sugars down to where we need them. Yeah, so, such a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because the the danger of this is that low carb nutrition is is too beneficial. So if you're on blood sugar and lowering medications, you could have dangerous dangerously low blood sugar. And that's why we have a whole guide on what to do about medications and how to talk to your healthcare practitioner about this um, because it is so important. So if someone out there on blood sugar lowering medications is thinking about starting a very low carb diet. Don't do it until you have a plan on what to do with your medications. Very important. Um, yeah. So, um, you, you started with 185 patients in, in the study 
um, or at least the data that you presented, 85 of whom completed 12 months of the program and 47 of whom completed six months of the program. So, and actually we should talk about what the program was. So let's start with that. I mean, I love the fact that um, you were very clear in the paper that there's no counting of carbs, there's no measuring of ketones, you just educate them on how to pick lower carb options. And I think that's so important to kind of keep it simple. So I'm curious what if you found that people had trouble um, maintaining that or if people you know still struggled with it even though you were keeping it simple. So is there sort of a good and a bad to keeping it simple or what was your what was your experience with that? Well, you know, I, I always say that weight loss happens from the nose up. Um, mm -hmm. The food plan is the easy part. It's why you can't stick to the food plan. That's the really hard part. Yeah. I mean, in our obesogenic society um, with hyperpalatable foods, um, with our uh, societal pressures, I mean, you can't watch TV for five minutes without getting bombarded with um, processed food commercials. Um, that's the really hard part. And our program, um, actually spends a great deal of time on all of that. Um, we have lifestyle coaching sessions. We have health psychologists. We have a health coach. Um, every time we see patients at least monthly, sometimes when they're struggling weekly, uh, to really work on the thoughts and the behaviors of weight loss. Once those are in check, it's very easy to eat the foods that, um, we prescribe. Like I said, in the beginning, these foods make you feel good. Um, they, mm -hmm. they, they keep you full, they keep you satisfied. Um, it's really sort of your cravings that get in the way. Most of the time hunger is controlled. If it's not, then we do use medications to, um, to, to help people with their hunger and their cravings. Yeah. So talk about those medications. What, what are your go-to medications and when do you decide that they're indicated? So we usually give people, um, a two or three month trial of diet alone, um, and see how they do. Um, I, there are a lot of people that have a lot of hunger and cravings in the beginning, and it's because they're eating processed food. Um, and as soon as you take the sugars and starches out of their diet, it just goes away. And people are always amazed. They say, I'm not hungry. Every now and then I'll get someone send me a message. Um, I haven't eaten all day today. I'm not hungry. Do, do I need to do something? Is this bad? What's wrong? They think something's wrong that they're not hungry. I'm like, no, this is normal. This is what your body's supposed to do. I teach people when they remove all those um, processed sugars and starches that your body then will become the perfect barometer to tell you when it's hungry, feed it. When it's not hungry, don't. But we, we don't rely on those cues because they've become so corrupted by the foods that we eat and right. really um, uh, hijacking our pleasure centers. Um, so uh, I forgot where the question was initially. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, but that was a good answer. <laughs> I like your answer. <laughs> Um, it, it had, mo mo it had to do with the keeping it simple, keeping the advice simple. And is there a risk of making it too simple or, you know, how do you balance the compliance issue with that? So, so two or three months, you know, we're seeing them all the time. And if for most people, and, and I'd like to come up with a number, but I don't have one, um, other than at the top of my head for most people, the hunger and cravings really diminish dramatically, but for some people either, they just can't stick to the plan because the cravings are just too difficult. The hunger is still there. And then those things need to be medicated. And you said, what kind of medications do I use? Um, so I use a lot of bupropion um, with naltrexone. Um, I use um, fentramine, you know, one of the oldest medications we've had. Of course, every, I try to make sure we're picking good targets. We don't have any kind of blanket. Everyone gets started on this medication. We're looking 
for the targets, you know, especially if there's a lot of um, family history of addiction kind of things, the addiction medicines like bupropion and naltrexone work very, very well. Um, if there's a lot of hunger, then appetite suppressants work well, like um, phentermine. And I really can't say enough about the GLP-1 agonists that we have. Um, if you have diabetes and you're not a G on a GLP-1 agonist, um, uh, you're working harder than you need to because they are tremendous with um, appetite and cravings and um, uh, satiety, um, all of those things. Um, they work really, really well. Um, so, so those are really our, our go-to medications for the most part. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting uh, way to approach it, that you give them a try without any medications first, just try diet and then sort of have them self-select the ones who are still struggling with, with the hunger and with cravings. And then at some point you have a set time frame where you'll try and take them off the medications or wean them down to see if those cravings and hunger have been conquered with the, you know, more time with the lifestyle or how do you balance that long-term versus short-term medical therapy? So, you know, as an obesity medicine physician, we truly believe that uh, weight loss medications are long-term medications. You know, like if people are struggling so much with hunger and cravings, probably they and they will for the long term. Um, so just like you wouldn't put someone on hypertension medication for three months and see how they do and take them off, we pretty much keep them on um, medications for obesity um, lifelong. Now, sometimes they'll self-select to say, you know, I think I'd like to, to try off it or um, maybe I want to try um, something like an appetite suppressant only on the weekends when I have a harder time when I go out with friends and things like that. So we're not opposed to, to a trial of doing it in a different way. But I certainly don't say, okay, you got this for three months and then we're taking you off of it to see how you do. Because for the most part, they won't do well at that point in time. So we really try to individualize the approach to each and every person. Yeah, that is interesting. Sort of a multifactorial approach. And some people would say, you know, it's it's uh, it's cheating to do it that way, or it's not a, a real weight loss to do it that way. But like you said, it, it, being overweight, being obese it is a disease, just like any disease. And you don't think about, you know, don't think twice about treating someone for with type two diabetes with a blood pressure medicine initially. So why would you think about treating somebody with obesity differently with a with a medication? Um, but it, it's it's a combined therapy, and I think that's the key. You don't just give them the medication and say, see you later, this is going to take care of you. It's got to be combined with the lifestyle therapy, which I'm sure you are all in favor of, as, as that's what your program seems to do. Um, if you just hand it to them, and unfortunately, then they'll have a really sort of negative opinion. Oh, those medications don't work. Well, they don't really work by themselves. They have to work in combination, really, with a, with a whole program. With treating the obesity with medication, oftentimes you will be able to come off a whole host of other medications. So if you treat really the underlying core disease, um, even if it requires medication, then you can get off of hopefully your diabetes medicines, your hypertension medicines, your hyperlipidemia medicines. So, so that one medication may actually allow you to reduce or eliminate many other medications. Yeah. And that's where GLP-1 agonists um, are probably the, the biggest example because if they help with weight loss, even though they're considered a diabetes medication or a blood sugar medication, they're, if they're more of a weight loss medication, you can get off your other blood sugar medications like insulin or, um, or sulfonylureas or whatever the case may be. So, so that makes a lot of sense. So when, going back to your, your study, when you looked at the results and, and saw the results on the paper in front of you about the reduction in A1C, about just how many people were able to get off insulin, were you surprised at all? Or, or since you had been living it, was that exactly what you expected to see once you crunched the numbers? Well, you know, I think you always have sort of a gestalt of how you're doing. 
Um, but until you look at the numbers, um, you don't really know exactly. So I think it was a good QI thing as well to a quality improvement to, to really be able mm -hmm. to see the numbers, to see how many people actually stay in over the course of a year. You know, attrition is, is very, very difficult in, um, in, weight loss programs. We, we always lose a lot of people. So figuring out how we can keep those people. If you, if you saw that, you know, even people at three and six months that dropped out that completed those, they still had very, very high rates of um, insulin uh, reduction and, and A1C improvement. But so what made them go away then? Why couldn't they continue? And that's where, where we still have to put our efforts into to retention, to to keeping these people. So if coming off their insulin wasn't enough to keep them, then what else do we need to do? So, um, but it, I, I, I think that yeah. I was really pleased with the results, you know, in, in the end. Yeah. But that, that's hard data to get when someone drops out to find out why they dropped out, because usually if they drop out, they're probably not going to respond to your queries of, about, <laughs> they're not going to respond to you about trying to figure out why they dropped out. But that would be so interesting. So if you could see ahead of time, you know, what are the characteristics that make this person more likely to not stick with it? And then the next step further, how do you specifically intervene upon those characteristics? So if you were to guess, like, you know, when you have a first meeting with somebody, what are some of the red flags that sort of pop up in your brain that say, okay, this person is going to struggle and maybe we should address X, Y, or Z uh, before we get started? So we do a great deal of pre-screening before the patients come. So they actually fill out 10 pages of paperwork where we're looking at things like depression scores, anxiety scores, looking for eating disorders, um, looking for childhood trauma, life stress, um, food addiction scores. So those give us a really good idea of who's going to struggle and what supports they might need early. So people who have depression that's not properly treated, those people are really going to struggle. And so we make sure that they get treated for the de their depression because a weight loss journey is hard. It's really hard. Yeah. It doesn't just happen. You have to put the effort into it. And if you're struggling with a lot of depression, it's going to be hard to have the, the energy to put into the program. So we make sure that they get treatment for that, or if they have childhood trauma that's been unaddressed, that they get treatment for that. So so the, um, the mental health diagnoses are the ones that concern us the most, and we try to give them the most supports, whether it be um, medication and or therapy to get them in a place where they can be successful with a weight loss program. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Now, it sounds like you have a multimodal practice where you have health coaches, you have nutritionists, you have physicians. Um, what kind of advice could you give to somebody where it's just the doc on their own and they don't have that extra logistical support? What kind of advice can you give them? Because I'd imagine there are so many doctors who would love to do something like this, but just feel like they don't have the means to do that kind of intervention. So I was the doc on her own for a long time. <laughs> um, and my success enabled me to add these people to my program. Um, and so fortunately, there are a lot of community resources that can help you do some of the, the pieces and, and parts of this. And in the beginning, I just begged a lot. So I used people that were free, like, you know, trainees to, to do some of my health coaching in the beginning. Um, and so I found ways to make it work. But, but I do have a couple of really, you know, as a primary care doctor, I do have a couple of, I think, really important points. First of all, you're going to get the most joy you've ever had doing this. So I, I highly encourage everyone to do it get trained, um, go to the Obesity Medicine Association to learn how you can get trained um, 
But the key thing is what I did for 20 years was, all right, we're going to do this for your diabetes, this for your blood pressure, this for your cholesterol, you're going to do this for your knee pain. And oh, by the way, eat less and move more. I'll see you in three months. Mm -hmm. So some big problems with that is number one, what did I just tell my patient? What's the importance of the the exercise and the diet. It's like way down here. It's like an afterthought. You can't, it's the most important thing that you're going to talk about because if you actually can make headway with that, all these other things are going to get better. So what I learned really early on is my primary care patient, I have a primary care visit. And if you want to do weight loss with me, we're going to have a weight loss visit. So I separated them out so I could spend the entire time, all 20 minutes, right? Um, of <laughs> just talking about um, uh, weight loss, obesity, and how we're going to get them moving forward. Um, you also can't, you know, the paradigm in primary care is, you know, six months if they're doing well, maybe you'll see them three months if things aren't really at goal. There's no way you can really help people if you see them four times a year. And that, that's at best, right? So you have to yeah. see people more frequently. And studies have shown that, that that's one of the most important pieces is frequent follow-up. That accountability is huge. Um, so I see people every month. So I might see them once every six months for primary care, but I'm seeing them monthly for, for weight loss. But then you have to have even something to fill in the, the time in between that month. And so we have a very robust Facebook page um, that has over 2,000 people on it, where I'm constantly posting um, educational information, recipes, and the group support is amazing. You know, in the beginning, I'd be posting to the air. Nobody's listening, nobody's listening. And, you know, now I could go away for a month and they all sort of self-facilitate. Uh, um, you know, you got your people who are really, you know, taking the lead. You know, I have like five people who, without tapping them to take the lead, will answer people's questions and do that. So it, it's about engagement. You really have to um, engage the patient. This, this is difficult stuff. And you have to, we do, um, even though we have a health coach, um, we do the majority of the health coaching every time we see the patient. So, so really yeah. understanding um, the behavioral models, um, cognitive behavioral therapy for weight loss, I think is really important too. Um, but then knowing who in your community can help you, you know, what, what psychologists or therapists in the community can really help you help your patients with, with their journeys. So, so until you get your own resources, tap into what you have available to you. Yeah. I really, I really like that advice of having a primary care appointment and a weight loss appointment and separating the two because you can't fit it all into one and you need to prioritize it in the right way. And I think that's so important. And to, to show them how the weight loss appointments will then translate into improvement in all their other conditions. And yeah, that's such, such important advice. Um, all right, well, I wanted to jump into some of the numbers here uh, of your study. So um, for those people who completed the 12 months, 86% of them decreased or stopped their insulin, and their hemoglobin A1C went from an average of 8 to an average of 6.9. So the other thing is note that these were fairly sick, sick people. They had um, over 90 units of insulin when they started on average, and their A1C was over 8.6. So, I mean, that's, that's a pretty sick baseline group to start with. Um, and like you said, even those who only made it three months, they were able to in decrease their insulin from an average of 79 units to 28 units, and their A1C went from 9.1 to 7.5. So those are impressive numbers in terms of the amount of reduction, in, of course, in medication and in, in A1C. Now, here's a, a question. You know, the, the American Diabetes Association recently came out with a, a definition of what it means for to have remission of type 2 diabetes. And based on these numbers... 
none of your patients had a remission of type, or not none, the average did not qualify for remission of type 2 diabetes. Do you care? Well, that's just the average. Um, I think if you look at a number of people, they, they really did. Um, do I care? No, I think it's just the label. Um, and I think if we look at some of the subsets, we, we would see what we wanted to see. Um, so I think it's good. We need definitions around all of these things. We really do. Like, we don't even know, you know, what's low carb. What does that mean? Um, (laughs) you know, um, nutrition research is really, really hard. I mean, doing research now and really delving into the nutritional research, um, you got to know what you're looking at. You know, one day eggs are good, the next day eggs are bad. And we're just a society of sort of headlines, but you got to know who's your study population. What's the inclusion? What's the exclusion criteria? Um, so, so I think there are certainly a subset of people who did make, um, remission, although for the most part, we do keep people on metformin because we think it's really helpful. And I think their remission is actually without metformin. So, um, right. and perhaps if we had a healthier population to start with, I mean, also the average BMI to start with was almost 43. Um, so, you know, class three obesity. So, so you're right. These are pretty sick people. If we had people that maybe weren't as sick to begin with, um, maybe we would have seen a whole lot more. So is the Delta the important thing or where you move it down to? Yeah, I think that that's a great answer. And I guess maybe I was leading the witness a little bit with the question, but I, I definitely have some problems with the way they define remission, um, that you have to be off all medications, uh, with an A1C less than 6.4. And if that's your only goal, then maybe you're putting the cart before the horse in, in a lot of in a lot of ways, and somebody may be better off on some metformin or on a GLP one right. agonist, or um, even if their if their blood sugar has not gone into the normal range, if the delta is there and you're moving the right direction, you keep going, right? Because it, it doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight. Just like the old saying is, your your type two diabetes didn't come up in the past four or six months. It's not going to go away necessarily in the past four or six months, but for some people it does. Right, some people can have that dramatic improvement where just things normalize and get better just like that. So again, what do you think is is some of the defining characteristics of somebody who is going to have just that rapid, rapid improvement, and someone's going to have who's going to have much slower um, sort of stair stepping decline? Because if they expect to be that rapid improver and they're not, they could get frustrated and kind of throw in the towel. So how do you how do you kind of help determine ahead of time who might be in what camp and how do you prepare them for what their journey may be? That is some absolutely great questions. Um, and I have a couple of answers, but the first thing that I want to say is, um, what you just said is brilliant. How do you prepare them? So, um, getting people prepared for their journey is so important because if you have unrealistic expectations, either by weight or their diabetes, um, they're not going to continue with you. So you have to, you know, if, if they're expecting to lose 20 pounds, you know, every month and they don't, they're going to be very frustrated. So setting expectations, mm-hmm. I think, like you said, is very, very important. I think the number one thing that lets me know whether they're going to do uh, very well or not, believe it or not, has nothing to do with how much insulin they're on how long they've been on it, it's actually their diet. When I see a diet that's laden with carbohydrates, I'm like, yes, because I know I have tons of room and I'm going to make them better quick. If they're willing to do therapeutic carbohydrate restriction, we ask them, you know, do you want to go slowly or do you want to dive all into a ketogenic diet? Because if they, if we put, put everyone in a ketogenic diet and people feel they can't stick to it, they're going to leave. So I, I'd rather keep them and work with them along their journey, figuring out what's going to fit best for them, having them take the lead on it, 
um, than putting everyone into the same the, the same uh, pigeonhole. So um, so if they're on if they eat lots of carbs all day long, then I tell them you know if you do this, we're going to probably see a, a rapid improvement, and we generally do. Like I said, 250 units of insulin in three weeks. I mean that's amazing, and that's so gratifying for yeah. the patient to to sustain their journey. Now I got to tell you though, there are a couple of people that despite either having lots of carbs and removing them all, I do struggle with being able to get them off of insulin. I mean, it's probably less than 5% of all the people that come to us on, on insulin, but you know, and I'm not hundred percent sure what's different with their physiology. We do things like see peptides and make sure that their pancreas is actually producing insulin, which it does um, make sure they're on a good insulin sensitizer like metformin. But um, with some people we do, we do really struggle and it takes much, 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 much longer to make any improvements. And sometimes they have to lose weight in order to become more insulin sensitive. Most people, the insulin sensitivity or being able to reduce their insulin absolutely precedes weight loss, but in a very few, it doesn't. The people that worry me are the people and everyone knows about keto. They come to me, you know, doing a fairly good, um, low carb diet. Um, and they're on, still on quite a bit of insulin. Um, and I'm thinking, where am I going to go with this? You know, what medications can I add? Um, you know, are they doing net carbs? I'll have them do total carbs then, but those are the people that I'm worried that I'm not going to see the rapid change that, that I love to see. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And have, have you uncovered many cases of, um, monogenic diabetes or MODI, you know, mature onset diabetes of the young, um, where they, they're essentially at someone with type one diabetes just presenting much later and sort of a slower onset. Have you, have you uncovered any of those or is that something you, you screen for? Just two. two. Yeah, okay. Don't screen. Yeah. You know, I let the, the patient tell me what they are and if we're mm -hmm. not making progress, you know, because the majority of people are going to make progress and if they're not making progress, that's when I start looking for the, for the, the zebras, if you will. Okay. Something's not adding up correctly here. Now I need to start looking is something else going on, but that's going to be the, yeah. the exception yeah. rather than the rule. So I, so we don't screen everybody for those things. Now you mentioned net carbs and total carbs, and that seems to always be an ongoing debate. And Sort of our simple rule at Diet Doctor is if you're eating whole foods, you talk about net carbs. If you're eating packaged or processed foods, you talk about total carbs. You said if someone's struggling and not progressing well, then you have them maybe transition from net to total. How do you see the whole, you know, the whole debate, the argument, the, the minefield of, of net versus total carbs? Yeah, I would agree with that sentiment um, completely. You know, I think uh, net carbs in broccoli is very different from net carbs from a tortilla that you buy that says, you know, great for low carb, you know. So we teach our people that um, if it says great for low carb, it's not because that means it's a package <laughs> that has, uh, you know, uh, they're putting in a whole bunch of fiber and sugar alcohols and things like that. So we really like to um, go with the whole foods approach too. We still teach the total carbs initially just because it's easier um, and mm. as they move forward and they're, they're getting closer to their goal, you know, they, we add more vegetables, we can add things where the, they're really going more by net carbs by again, the unprocessed things. I'm not going to tell them to start adding a bunch of, you know, tortillas and, and bread that claims to be, you know, zero net carbs while it's, you know, 10 grams of total carbs kind of thing. All right. Very good. Now, in, in the beginning of, of this interview, you talked about your friend, the nephrologist, who said you're going to kill everybody with, and is now one of your biggest refers. 
I'm so curious about that transition and getting some of these specialists who don't deal with you know nutrition very much all the time, aren't sort of personally invested in it, how to get them to have more of an open mind and see the benefits. Now, you obviously have the benefit of now being an author on a paper that is published, so people are going to take notice and listen to you. But what, what advice can you give to other physicians out there or even to, to other patients to maybe talk to their physicians about how to get people more aware of this so we can turn some of those skeptics into the biggest referrals sources like you did with your friend, the nephrologist? So the thing is, really, just do it. Um, the success, you know, is your calling card. So, you know, I didn't ask permission. I, the mm-hmm. patients would come to me on their own um, and then they'd go back and their doctors would say, wow, what happened to you? Well, I'm going to this clinic and they use a ketogenic diet and um, it's been great for me. Really? And so then I get another patient from that. And we, we, we take care of very, very complicated patients. You know, fortunately, I'm an internist. I feel really comfortable with complicated patients. I have a couple of nurse practitioners that work with me. And um, we now see all the pre-transplant patients, the post-transplant patients, um, people who need orthopedic surgery. Um, and I've never advertised once. It's because my patients are my advertisement. When they go back and now they're able to get their surgery or they're able to get their transplant then their doctors say, let me send the next one and see if this can work. Um, and so the network just builds itself. And um, people have been, very, myself included, have been very unsuccessful in helping their patients lose weight. And then they, I believe, start to appreciate that there's someone who can actually do that. So they become more than happy to send me their patients. And I am more than happy to receive them and send them back. Um, now, I, when I say send them back, we always keep them. So even after they get their surgery, their plant, transplant, whatever, they still come to see me. Um, it's lifelong. Uh, if they go away, they usually gain weight. And a lot of people do go away and then they come back a year or two or three later saying, you know, I thought I could do this on my own, but I really need that accountability. And so can I come back? I'm like, of course. Yeah. Now you've obviously been doing this for a while now, over eight years. You're, you've um, been involved in research. What's next? Is there more research down the road or there just continuing more of the same? What do you think's in in your future? So um, I'm doing a lot of research now. That's just um, one of my first author papers. But um, I think people in a lot of other disciplines are really seeing that the ketogenic diet has um, some far-reaching implications in in practice. And so I work a great deal with um, the liver doctors um, in uh, pre- and post-transplant patients. Um, I work with pulmonary hypertension patients. Um, I work with post um, and pre-kidney transplant patients. Um, I'm working with a lipidologist right now. So people know what a ketogenic diet is now, and they're starting to see the, the many possible therapeutic uses. I get some people that come to me now because they read my name in a book or something, and they have Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, and they want to have a trial of a therapeutic uh, ketogenic diet to see, will this make me any better? Um, and I treat them in a different way, quite not, not quite as pragmatically as I do people who are trying to lose weight or improve their diabetes. We ensure that they're in ketosis, make them get a meter um, to see, let's give this a three-month trial and see if you are any better. 
because we don't really want to continue yeah. it if they're trying it for a particular reason, if they don't feel benefit at the end of that trial. Right. So that's actually a good point because in your study, you didn't test um, ketones, you didn't you know, count carbs. So that's a little bit different than the situation you just described. So when do you think it is important to be checking ketones and to be making sure you're in ketosis and to have that extra layer of certainty and that extra layer of work? When do you think that's most important to add in? Well, I think any study I do from now on, you know, if you're going to label it as a ketogenic study rather than a low carb study, then you need to really prove that your patient is ketogenic. So I think that any future study, if we're going to be looking at a ketogenic diet versus a low carbohydrate diet needs to have home testing and, and in office beta hydroxybutyrate testing. Um, I do, there are some times where I will actually test patients. Um, and that is usually when they're not doing well. Um, I'm like, well, we're not really making progress. Um, I think we should start seeing if we can get you into ketosis um, and see if we can make more progress then. And it's actually a little bit interesting when I say that. I say, you know, let's dip your urine now for ketones. They, oh, um, well, you know, I had some alcohol yesterday and, and a cake last night. So will that interfere when they're telling me how well they were doing? Um, but sometimes they are really on target and they're just not moving. Then I really try to get them to, to use a number as a guide, either to test on their own or to get some, some urine strips or, or to get a blood monitor or a breath monitor. It gives them something to shoot for to um, hopefully see if we can get the, the scale moving a little bit by getting them into ketosis. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Now, one thing I have to rewind and comment on, you said you're working with a lipidologist. So I tried not to like show my surprise here, but that's, that's pretty surprising. I mean, I, the sort of, in my mind, one of the last areas to crack with a low carb diet or certainly a ketogenic diet is going to be the world of lipidology. Uh, I mean, I guess I thought it was pretty special that I was like the only lipidologist in the world who believed in a low carb or, or keto diet, but maybe I'm not so special if you're working with another one here. So tell me about how that's working, like working with a lipidologist on a diet where the vast majority of cardiologists say is going to kill you because of what it's going to do to your cholesterol. So uh, tell me how that how that's working. And by the way, I hang on your every word um, when you talk about this, so because you know that that has always been my concern too. But I, I do love the cartoon where um, you have all the benefits of a ketogenic diet um, and the patient sitting on the, um, on the exam table and it says, oh, you know, you've gotten rid of your diabetes, you're, you've lost 40 pounds, um, uh, but you're going to kill yourself with this diet, right? And so all the good things that it does, and then the one thing you have over here is LDL. And it's really just, you know, the large buoyant LDL, really, not even the small dense. So, um, so actually... I have to be a little careful for patient confidentiality, but um, this person um, may be, um, have, have done quite well on his or her own on a ketogenic diet and said, huh, maybe the paradigm is incorrect. Um, and this lipidologist is actually not a clinician, but a bench researcher. Um, and so we're going to look at some of these things and, and we've done some preliminary work and a lot of the things that this person wants to do hasn't really been looked at yet, or there's at least, I shouldn't say hasn't been looked at, but really hasn't been, um, uh, published yet. So we're, we're going to look at, you know, some of the extra, you know, many, many, um, LDL molecules and, and the, the fatty acid mo molecules and all the stuff, which I may or may not understand all that well, since I'm a clinician, but, uh, we, we really need, you know, you're right. This is one of the last, um, areas that really has any, um, any conflict. Um, however, I was thrilled last year when the journal of the American college of cardiology said, you know, um, whole 
foods, whole, sat, whole foods with saturated, high saturated fat content um, don't cause heart disease. And they went on to say, even if it increases LDL, it's the large buoyant and not the, the small dense. So I thought that was um, one of the best things I've seen in eight years that gives me sort of renewed confidence that, that what I'm doing is correct. Yeah, that was really interesting. And and I, I always like to clarify that wasn't an ACC statement page. So it's not that the American College of Cardiology now supports that, but just the fact that they were willing to publish the paper by Dr. Krauss and others um, in their journal to to uh, to talk about that subject. Just the fact that they were willing to publish it, it was, is a huge step forward because that's the type of thing that would just get rejected out of hand. I think normally because it's against the narrative, it's against what the common belief is, but now they're at least open to the concept to explore it and publish it. And there's enough data out there to make them say, hmm, there's something here. I think that's really, really interesting and certainly encouraging for the future. And just like on a prior podcast where I, I interviewed Dave Feldman, now he's helping orchestrate a, a study with scientists and researchers to look at this issue. So this is something that we're going to see a lot of in the future. And it looks like you're going to be helping with that too, which I think is really exciting. Exciting. So that's really fascinating. Yes. Well, thank you for for all your work and your your I mean your tireless work as a clinician, your advocacy, speaking about it, now getting in, into the literature. And I'm so glad to hear this isn't the last time we're going to see your name in the literature. That there's going to be more out there. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. And if there are any last words, or of course, if any advice on where our listeners can find you to, to hear more about all the exciting stuff you're up to. Well, I just want to you know thank Diet Doctor. Um, it's been an immense help for my practice because when patients come in with hair loss or, you know, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to give you the diet doctor thing on that. Um, I, I have, since I'm not a vegetarian, I have a little harder time instructing, um, vegetarians. And so, Oh, we'll just send you to diet doctor. So not that I got paid for advertising diet doctor, but it has really <laughs> helped me in my practice. And so when I started eight years ago, I didn't necessarily have all the resources that diet doctor has now. So it's been just a wonderful um, thing to help me help my patients. And again, we can't really do it all alone. It is such a, a right. all encompassing thing to help people lose weight that the more resources that we have to help our patients, um, the better. And I hope that we're going to, I'm excited about this um, Diet Doctor Pro thing. Um, I hope that um, we're going to hopefully start to get more and more behavioral resources to, to help our patients as well, because that, that's still a real need that, you know, we're sort of picking bits from, from here, there, and other places. Um, but, um, you know, getting some, some fundamental platforms around that, I think would be super helpful. Thank you. Thank you for those kind words for diet doctor. I mean, that's, that's certainly what we hope to hear and what we're striving for is to help people as much as we can. And of course, with our new DD pro offering for clinicians, we just want more and more clinicians to be able to engage their patients in the way you do and see the type of success that you see. I mean, it's, it's amazing and it's what we need. I know it revitalized my career as a physician. It sounds like it's revitalized your career as a physician to see this type of success. Um, in a way it's selfish, right? We feel better because we're helping so many more people. Isn't that why we went into medicine in the first place? And I feel like maybe the first, you know, 20 plus years, you know, didn't, I didn't really do it, you know, and maybe it took those 20 years so that I can really feel the joy that I feel in it now. But yeah, um, it's, it's a, a thrill every day. Um, there's not a day that goes by that I don't feel like I've made a difference. <laughs>